You see, people collect all kinds of things. New, old, priceless, worthless. Darling, it doesn't matter what. I simply must know why. Those mothballs shouldn't get to keep all the secrets. This is the Mothball Prophecies. Get everything ready to go here. <laughs> so when we started sitting down for the interview, my grandmother was very okay. apprehensive because she doesn't really have an idea of what a podcast actually entails and can't hear you who is going to be hearing yeah. it and what I was supposed to talk about. And um, she was prepared to just talk about Lennox porcelain and Waterford crystal the whole time. Um, there's some charming bits that happen during this interview. Um, growing up, I always heard the chimes of this grandfather clock whenever we were at my grandmother's house. And I remember sitting down listening to them that day. Um, so they, you'll hear them throughout the recording, the chimes and chirps of that sweet clock. Let me see if I can find it. There it is. I'll have you know that when you start a show, you get kind of hyper aware of audio and issues that are happening in the world around you, noise-wise. And I'll have you know, I forgot about this clock until we started recording. So that first set of bells raised my cortisol levels so high. But now listening back, I'm just laughing. I'm very happy that they're in the recording. So when I was sitting down with my grandmother for this interview, I had two purposes for it. Um, my grandmother was diagnosed with cancer and she has two types of cancer. And one of them uh, is renal cancer and there's no real like treatment for it to make it go away. Um, and she is older. So I really wanted to capture as much of my personal family history inside of this interview as well as her personal story um, and her journey to collecting. Okay. Are you ready? Yeah. All right. So today I have on the show, I'm here by myself today because we're with a very special person today who, because of everything that's going on in the world, still needs to be a little protected. Today I'm at my grandmother's house in a small town in Idaho, the, the town they've lived in most of their lives. Um, today we're interviewing my grandma, Jackie. Hi, grandma. Thank you. <laughs> How are you today? I'm good. Good. It's a beautiful day in the summer today. And I wanted to have you come on. She is uh, a little perplexed as to the setup that I've put in front of her. But she's been a real trooper in putting the headphones on and the microphone in front of her. Because this is definitely very different than your day today, wouldn't you say? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So I want you to give me the most descriptive answers you can for the questions I'll ask, okay? Okay. Just so, because the people that are listening don't know who you are. Right. Like I know you. And they want to, they're going to want to know who you are because I talk about you so often. Thank you. In the show, because you were, you're my antique mentor my entire life. Because you are, how old are you, Grandma? 75. 75. And you were born and raised in this area, correct? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Firth till I was 12, and then I moved to Pocatello. Right. But I, my grandparents lived west of town, three miles out of Firth. And we came, my sister and I, 
came back to Firth almost every weekend to be with my grandparents. And did your grandparents were Swedish immigrants, correct? My grandmother was born in Salt Lake, but my grandfather immigrated from Sweden. He was a Swedish Finn. Oh, okay. And did they, so when they moved here, did they move here because family was already here or did they immigrate to the area? Uh, they, uh, my grandpa, my grandma was in Salt Lake and my grandpa moved to Salt Lake and he helped build the Capitol building in Salt Lake. And then you were able to get 80 acres of land, uh, west of Firth if you drilled a well. So they, homesteaded 80 acres of land and built a house and they lived there till they died. But I don't know what year they immigrated. I'll have to look that up. I found a really interesting uh, historical society document the other day that I'll talk about a little later about the Swedish uh, homesteads and the Scandinavian homesteads in this area. Right. There's a document written up about where they all were. Yeah. And it was very, very interesting to read over. Yes, sir. It was a Swedish area, uh, Lutheran, and uh, that's where they settled. Yeah. And how old were they when they moved here? Were they married when they moved here and had the 80 acres? Yes. My mother was six years old when they moved here, or thereabouts. When she moved here with her family? Yes. And she, when she started first grade, she didn't speak any English. Oh, my God. She spoke nothing but Swedish. And what's your mother's name again? Ellen Marie. And my father was Joseph Frank. He grew up in Blackfoot, and my mother grew up in Firth. Yeah, and they were both, the, were they first generation here? Or did your um, your father lived part of the time in Sweden and then came? Uh, my father, uh, My father's father immigrated from Lithuania, and my mother's father immigrated from Sweden, but my grandmother was born in the United States, and but uh, and then my great-grandparents moved to Firth and built a house, and uh, so they all, the, the whole family kind of immigrated together then from Sweden? Yes. On both sides? Yes. Okay. I didn't know that, because I know, like, my grandfather's family... I knew that they immigrated here and had their homestead. Was it the same 80-acre deal that everybody got? Yes. Wow. And did you get a pick where it was, or did they tell you? I don't know. Interesting. Yeah, I wonder, because I know where, for those of you that don't know, the area that we live in, in southeastern Idaho, my grandmother currently lives in a small town outside of Firth, and the area that the Swedish and Scandinavian settlers had was west of the river yes but that area was mostly lava rock from the lava flow yes and at the time they referred to it now it's referred to as like part of Shelley or whatever and new sweden and those types of things that's kind of the lower part of the state but that area as far as i know was called lava valley no it was called riverview riverview i well the only reason i refer to it as lava valley was in Great Grandpa's diaries, he refers to it. Grandpa Joe's diaries, he refers to it as Lava Valley. I see. Which, it, I mean, it could have gone by Lava Valley and Riverview, and that could have been what they referred to it as. And there's a... 
it's interesting when I was going over those documents because also at the same time was there was LDS settlers in the area, Mormon settlers. Yes. And when I was going through this document, I have always heard throughout my life, and it's no, I don't want to say anything disparaging about the religion, uh, but at the time, there was a great divide between the Swedish and Scandinavian settlers and the, the Mormon settlers. I'm sure. And it, it's documented in that historical document that I found. It clearly states that the Mormon settlement and the Swedish Scandinavian settlements never intermixed. No. They were on completely different parts of the town. That's right. And I have always heard that history from you and grandpa and our family, but I had never, I always thought it was just, you know, lore or whatever, but to see it documented was surprising. Uh huh. But, anyways, that was, it was something I wanted to share with you about that. So, when you were growing up, so you were born in Firth at the homestead. No, I was born in Shelley. Okay. At Eaton Maternity Home on Center Street. All right. It's a house. Oh, is it a house now mm-hmm. on Center Street? Was it? Is it the one by the mechanics? No. No. It's a yellow brick two-story home is on the, the north side now? of Center Street. I'll have to drive by and look for that. I don't know that I've ever seen it. So that's where you were born. How many brothers and sisters do you have? I had one. I have one sister and one deceased brother. Right. And we'll get into that a little bit. So you were born in Shelley, then moved to Firth, correct? Yes. And you lived there until you were four? Well. Twelve. Sorry. Excuse me. Until you were 12. And then you guys moved to Pocatello. Yes. When you lived here in Shelley, describe to me your early childhood. What was your family life like? Did you guys have money or were you, because you were immigrants, were you a little bit below the poverty line? What was your childhood like for you? My sister and I were 18 months apart and we were really close. Uh, We played together. Uh, My father worked for Lloyd Stallworthy. And uh, what did he do with Lloyd Stallworthy? He was a farmer. Okay. Uh, They're still in the area, Stallworthy's. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, My mother, uh, I I just spent time with my sister. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were very, very close and we still are. Uh, And I moved to Pocatello and Lived there until I was 17 and a half. And was Eric your brother? No, Max. Sorry, Max, excuse me. So, how old was Max? Was he older than you or younger than you, Elaine? He was seven years older than me. Oh, wow. And he died at age 33. Right. Yeah. And so, it was just to tether it out. Well, it was you and then Elaine and then Max, or was it Max, you and then Elaine? It was Max, Elaine, and then I. All right. So, you're the baby. You're yes. the caboose. Yes. So um, you mentioned that you you moved to Pocatello at 17. 12. Oh, God bless it. I'll get it right. I have 17 in my brain because I'm getting to the question about you and grandpa. So you moved to Pocatello when you were 12. And then you finished, not, you didn't finish high school there, but you met my grandfather. I knew your grandfather slightly as a child. Uh I knew who he was. We spent time with his uncle's family, Philip Swenson, and uh, 
I remember him somewhat as a child, and he dated my sister, and I dated his friend, and we didn't like each other much. <laughs> when you guys were, were dating the other side of it, you didn't care for each other then? No. No. So what was the turning point? Because you buried him. Well, I would come down to sh uh, be with my grandparents, and I was spending some time with a girl in Idaho Falls, and I needed a ride home back to Pocatello, and I called down to the service station in Shelley, where I knew people, and said, I need a ride to Pocatello, and Wallace was home on a break from the Air Force from Mountain Home. And he said, I'll take you back to Pocatello. So he did. And we dated. And <laughs> the rest is history. We were, we were married for almost 53 years. So at this time, um, there was Pocatello, Idaho Falls, and the little hamlet, Shelley, in Firth that my grandmother's referring to. In today's mile per hours, it's about... 40 minutes away to get to Pocatello by freeway. But back then, it was probably closer to an hour drive. So when she would come down and go back, it was quite the ordeal to come through to all these different towns. So um, listening to her recant the story of meeting my grandfather is a little more interesting knowing exactly how much time they spent together that day. 53 years. Yeah. And so at the time, because you knew you didn't like him, how did you feel about Wally Swenson was going to give you a ride home? I was fine with it. You were okay with it. I trusted him. Yeah. What kind of car did he drive at the time? He drove a 53 Ford that didn't run very good. <laughs> so the funny thing about this is my grandfather was a Ford lover until the day that he died. And when he passed away, he had this beautiful orange uh, Ford pickup that... My mother almost sold on Facebook and I called her and I said, whatever you're asking, I'll pay it if I can just have that truck. And I owned that truck for um, a year and a half and then sold it back to my mom and my uncle and it's still in the family. And it's one of those things where when you, you've ever gotten into a vehicle and you smell it and it just reminds you of a person or a time or a place. Um, every time I get into that truck, I smell my grandpa and it's... I'm glad it's still there. It did run very good. <laughs> that was kind of a common trend with, well, the, the most of the Fords he had ran okay after that, but they all kind of had their yeah. idiosyncrasies. Yeah. So growing up, did you start antiquing at an early age? No. When I went to town with my grandma, which my grandma was the most wonderful person in the world. She was so kind. And we would we'd go to town, my sister and I and grandma and grandpa, and we'd always get an ice cream and she would buy a dish. What kind of a dish? Like porcelain or crystal Just, or uh of a, a piece of glass dish. I have one of them left. I have one of her candy dishes left. And uh she was the kindest lady you could ever imagine, and uh, I just loved her to death. Yeah. Was it, did you always, would, did she always buy a dish? Was that the only thing she ever collected, or did she have yeah. other things? Yeah. Just her dishes? Yeah. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. 
And when, because you collect a lot of dishes now. Yes. Do you tend to lean towards the dishes that she collected? No, I tend to, uh, I like etched glass. Right. Etched like uh, before depression or after depression glass? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Anything will do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's, I think, uh, I share the same affinity for the glass now because it reminds me of you because you have a lot of beautiful pieces. So you had that fateful ride with Wally going home. Mm -hmm. Did you start dating after that? Yes. Uh, I was I was dating another guy. I was dating a Navy guy, and we were serious. And I broke up with Wally, uh, or soul. <laughs> and then I went to Arizona for four months and lived with my sister in Mesa, Arizona. And then I came back in January or February of 1962 and we started dating again and uh, we were serious and we got married June 10th, 1962. Correct. And then, so you were married at uh, here in Shelley. And then after that, you guys moved a lot. No, we didn't move a lot. Well, to different areas, I mean a lot. Yes. So you were... You were an Air Force family, and you were 17 when you guys got married. Yes. So you went from 17 years old to living in a very small town of less than probably a 1,000 people at the time, maybe just at. And where was the first place you went? Was it Spain, or was it, Santa, or was it Mountain Home? Uh, we were stationed in Mountain Home from 1962 to 1964, and then we went to Spain. Uh, with a 15-month-old child, mm. which was difficult traveling across the states because she got sick. Oh, no, my mother. Uh-huh, Jocelyn. And we went to Spain in April of 1964. And was that, what was that like to go from such a small place in the United States to overseas with an infant and then you were, were you pregnant at the time too? No, I Not got yet. pregnant in Spain. So you, then you, you go overseas to an area that you don't know with a language you don't know. What I was, was too that young like? to be scared. <laughs> oh, I love that. So was it just a, a very exciting opportunity then? No, we had no money. Oh, okay. We were very broke, but we somehow, we got what was called base housing. We were 20 miles from the base, and we were right outside of Madrid, and we could, oh, I don't know how it happened. Someone pulled strings, and we went to Spain together mm -hmm. and moved into this three-bedroom, two-bath house in, in uh, it was called, oh, I forget what it was called, but how it happened, I don't know. It was an absolute miracle because we could drink the water. Uh, it was furnished. Uh, it was Americans all around us. And it was 
like I said, an absolute miracle that right. we got base housing. Because so there was, was recently there was a family funeral, and it was for my grandfather's brother, who was older than my grandfather, and he was in the service before my grandfather joined the Air Force. They're both in the Air Force. And there is a rumor that has gone around that my grandfather was a little bit of a, uh, he was kind of a turd. <laughs> and so there was rumor that his brother got him this housing because he was a little higher up. Now, I don't know that there's any validity to that, but I kind of like that maybe his older brother was looking out for them. Because, I mean, grandpa was not an officer and you were basically living in officer housing, right? Uh, it had been converted. Okay. It was officer housing, but it converted to sergeant housing. And all we had was three stripes, airman first, and I don't know. Oh, very. Wow. That's great. And I have, I just, I, I was talking to mama about this last night and answering, asking her some questions before I came today. And I... Going through the timeline of the places you have lived, not a lot, but to think about doing that all before you were 30 years old at my age. Yes. Yes. Just is astonishing. Astonishing. Because I guess to me and to a lot of people, you don't see your parents or your grandparents as people before you were in their life. Right. Right. You've always just been my grandmother. And to think about moving to Spain with my child now just makes my skin crawl. I can't imagine how stressful it was or how stressed, like worried your mama was. And I know that when you lived in Spain, was that when one of your family members passed away while you were there? Uh, uh, I had a niece pass away on Wally's side of the family. Mm. She was two and she drowned. Oh, my goodness. But I don't know. It was, I was too stupid and young. <laughs> and I just uh, decided to have another baby. And uh, he was, he was born in 1965. And we left Spain in 1967. And uh, went to San Antonio, Texas. Right. And you were there for, what, six months? Two years. Two years. Two years. And then you went to the place that you spent the most of your right. military career in mom and Brett's formative years. Yes. Which was in England. Yes. Now, is this where the bulk of your collecting started and antiquing? Did you do much in Spain and San Antonio or was it mostly in England? Mainly in England. I couldn't afford it in Spain. And uh, the stuff there wasn't quality. Oh, okay. Uh, it just it just wasn't. And it's uh, we bought a few paintings and uh, we bought... <laughs> well, I think I have the, the jug that you got in Spain. Do you remember that ceramic jug you gave me? It's a jug or a spout or... With a what? leather one? No, it's uh, like white ceramic. Was that from Spain? You gave it to me a couple of years yes. ago. Yeah, yes. I have it. Yeah, at my house. Yes, yes. Spain, I couldn't drive because it was too dangerous. Mm. Uh, Brett was sick a lot. 
he wasn't healthy and so but it was it was a it was okay but then we went to San Antonio in 1967 which was a wonderful place lots of friends we lived just outside the base and Wally made rank what rank did he make he he made staff sergeant oh wonderful and then in 19 July 19th of 1969, we went to England. We had friends there, so we went together and uh, moved into a house in uh, what was called Marlow Bottom, out of Marlow, uh, Buckinghamshire. And we rented a house, a real small house, from a Danish lady who we became great friends with. And uh, nice neighborhood, nice friends. And then in 1971, in January, we moved to a town called Bister in Oxfordshire. Mm -hmm. It was a brand new house built for Americans. It was a lovely house. Uh, It was base housing, but it was off base. And uh, I didn't drive at the time, but the bus stopped right in front of my house, so I would go into town and shop, and it was uh, it was wonderful. And this was, let's see, mom and mom would have been what five or six at this time. Let's see, sixty three. She was then... born in sixty three. She was. I can't think. Well, there, so you would have had a little bit more freedom to explore in England than you would have had in Spain, just circumstantially. Well, I didn't care. It was the driving situation in England was difficult, uh, fast, and I just didn't like the driving. And we didn't have a lot of money yet, but. We, uh, I inherited my grandmother's dining room table. So this dining room table comes up in probably every conversation I have with my grandmother. And even more so, after my grandfather died, my grandma went through this time where she felt like she had to let everybody know what in the house was going to who when she died. And she still kind of does it. And I have to remind her, like, I don't want to think about when you die. So stop telling me the things I'm going to get. Just leave sticky notes on them or something. But she reminded me on the phone the other day when I asked her about glassware. She says, remember, with that dining room table, the leaf doesn't stay in very well, so you need to clamp it. If you don't clamp it, your dinner is going to end up on the floor. And then she continued on with uh, our glassware conversation. But this is that table that she was talking to me about. My grandmother died in 1961. And uh, my uncle put furniture in a basement house of land we owned. And I was fortunate that no one stole it. But I inherited a dining room table and six chairs and what was called a server and a table that was my great-great-grandmother's or my great-grandmother's. And... uh, We went to England, and we could find furniture to blend with this dining room table. So we bought what was called reproduction 
furniture made of mahogany. Right. And it's the strongbow style, isn't it? Yes. Right. And that's what the theme that runs throughout your house kind of borders a little bit of Queen Anne. It's called Regency. Regency. Okay. Mom and I couldn't come up with a name for it. But it is, it's beautiful. And the theme runs through your whole house. Are most of these, like the the hutch and the pieces we can see here in the living room, are these, did you bring these back from England? Yes. Everything in here. Okay. And when you, so when you guys were, I know that you and grandpa antiqued together every weekend. Where were you guys just looking for fun little treasures or was it just a way to end the week for you guys to go out and collect? Well, we were there from 69 to 74 and we bought this new furniture, what was a reproduction. And then we left England and shipped it all back. And we went to Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, we went back to England in 76. And then we started collecting antiques. That's when we uh, went antiquing every weekend. Uh, we just picked up what we liked. There were antique shops all over the place. Yeah, I couldn't imagine a better place to go and antique in England. Yeah, I mean. and it wasn't that expensive. Uh, and uh, we just went antiquing, and then we left England in 1980 and came back to Shelley and retired from the Air Force. Brett was 15 and Jocelyn was 17. Right. And they had spent, I mean, their formative years in England and formative for you and grandpa also. Very. What was that like to come back here where you had spent, I mean, almost as much time as you spent in Idaho before you left in England? Yes. What was that like to come back here? Very scary. Right. Well, for those that, I mean, don't know you, while you were overseas, you lost a lot of your family. Uh, my brother died and my parents died. My parents died in 1973, uh, two and a half months apart. We came home. That your parents died two and a half months apart? Oh, my word. We came home when my father died and took care of everything and unfortunately had to put my mother in a nursing home. Uh, my brother died in 1971, and it, and it broke her heart. Uh, he was a tough child to raise, and she just gave up and uh, went to bed. And uh, we came home, and we had to borrow $1,000, but Wally and I and the two children came home and stayed with Wally's mom and Shelly. And we emptied my mother's house and put her in a nursing home. And we were here for five weeks, and then we flew back to England. Oh, my word. And Elaine had already, she was already in Arizona then. Yeah, Elaine was in Arizona. Wow. Yeah. And then, so this was, then when you came, yeah, I just, that was, this is another thing that I I just, I guess, have not 
thought about in any great depth until I was doing the the questions and things for this. I could not imagine how foreign you felt to come back here. Very. And very. To, and to only have grandpa's side of the family. Yes. And that, I mean, you know, we know the history of that was not the greatest at some times. That's right. And I, my heart broke for you as that young woman to come back to that. I, this moment still, as I'm sitting here listening back, um, makes me weep. I don't think I've ever in my time on earth had such a candid conversation with my grandmother about this time in her life. She's always been very stoic and releasing the bits of information that she would like people to know, as you could tell from the beginning of this interview, where she was still a little uh, closed off. Um, but yeah, this was a really, I'm glad I get to share this beautiful moment with you guys. Yeah, I was 34 when we retired. Uh, and it was very difficult and it, uh, it's been 40 years and it's, what can I say? It hasn't been pleasant here. Yeah. It, uh, my children are wonderful. My grandchildren, I just love to death and I have a great grandson, but, uh, Wally's mother was not easy to get along with, and Wally changed in the late 80s, and uh, he had health problems, and uh, it was it's it was difficult here. Uh, Wally died February 10th in 2015, and uh, it wasn't a shock because. He had three heart surgeries, and he he felt didn't feel good often. And his last surgery in two thousand nine, they put in a titanium valve, and they did way too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did. He was in Salt Lake for two years. He went ten times to Salt Lake. And they did way too much, and I believe it caused dementia. And uh, the last six years of his life were difficult. So there was a little section in this part of the interview that my grandmother called me after we recorded and asked that I remit it from the episode. And we always give our guests that option for whatever they say. Um, But she was saying some things that were, I think we've all felt in our marriages and getting married at a young age and kind of, you know, having your life start at such a young age before you really know what life is like. And then especially at the time that my grandmother was married and in the military, there really wasn't, we all know this, a lot of options for women um, and single women and single women with children and quite possibly divorced single women. Um, I wish, and I've told her, you know, numerous times since this conversation that lots and lots and lots and lots of women had those same feelings, but for her privacy, we're going to, um, 
I remitted that. Maybe one day I'll get to share that part with you. I mean, 53 years is monumental, of course, but to spend a lot of that time where, you, I mean, you guys were babies when you got married. Yes. You were just, you were children. So that is, and then you came back here when you, you know, retired from the military and you were 34. You're in a new, just as foreign land as Spain was, I'm sure, back here. And then grandpa started working out at the site. Mm-hmm. But you could drive now an antique here. Yes. yes. And so when you guys came back here, how did all of the items come back with you? Uh, a, a moving company come in, packed everything up, put it in crates and put it on a truck <laughs> and put it on a ship. And oh, wow. Here it came. That's marvelous. And I fed them very well, the packers. To make sure that nothing was disturbed. Well, they did steal my recipes. <laughs> they stole my recipe books, and they stole my recipes. I went through 100 tea bags in three days, keeping the tea coming, and uh, only a couple things got broke. Oh, that's great. Especially, I mean, to come from one side of the world to the other. Yes. To come here. And when you guys, because, I mean, your house is impeccable with antiques. I mean, it's every room has its theme and every, what would, what would you say, I guess, the percentage of antiques that are in the house now, how many of them were from England versus what you've collected in the last 40 years? Would you say all of the furniture pieces are probably from when you were in England? Yes. With the exception of, I mean, this, the chairs we're sitting in and. Yes. Everything, pretty much everything. Uh, there's a, a table, a f very, very little from the States. I mainly collected glassware. Mm -hmm. Lots of glassware. Yeah. And porcelain. Yes. Yes. And I love that. What I've always loved is I love that you have your pieces from your family that are very kind of mission style. Uh -huh. They were utilitarian because of the time that they were being used and the money that they did or didn't have. And I love the juxtaposition between the pieces you had growing up versus the pieces you've collected. Did you and grandpa share similar tastes in the antiques? So there really wasn't a lot of argument or was that the kind of you had to come to? No, we, we agreed. We agreed on what we bought. We agreed on what we bought. Right. Yeah. Because it is very cohesive and they're, I mean, it's beautiful, all the antiques. And my antique aesthetic in my early years definitely leans towards the things you collect. Mm -hmm. Like the Yadro porcelain I have, because you have several pieces of Yadro and the Wedgwood glass and yes. Pyrex. The one thing... There's a couple things. I'll talk about a couple of my favorite things that you have, and then you can tell me some of yours. So my favorite things, it's no doubt, have always been the bosun heads, uh -huh. the beam in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. And they are, bosun heads were made in a town in England, and they are chalkware. Yes. And they depict uh, an effigy of a person, either dreamt up or a real person. It's just a bust, not really a bust. It's a head with a flat back with a hook. And they're hard to find because of what they're made from, because they break and chip and wear. Yes. But you guys have, I don't even know how many, at least 20 
Yes. And you, where did you buy those when you were in England? Well, the base, uh, when, when we were in Bicester, would get them in. So the funny thing about this part is you can hear my grandmother's excitement when she talks about these shipments of items that were coming into the base that they could go shop. Um, a couple of days before this, I was at my mother's house and I was asking her about her collections and what she has. And she had the same level of excitement about going to the BX to get whatever treasures had shown up that week. And it really, and they're the most, I mean, uh, mundane kind of collectibles, but I love that watching my mother and my grandmother's face both light up when they talk about these tiny objects is just, it's one of my favorite things. And I could buy a few downtown Bister, but the word would get out. Oh, that you were buying them? That the Bossons were in. Uh, is it pronounced Bosson? Bossons. Oh, I've been saying it wrong all this time. The Bossons were in, and everybody headed to where you bought them. There were two or three trailers that had special stuff, and you, you, you got word they were in, and you headed to get the Bossons. Well, and they're incredible. Yes. And they're, I mean, for as old as they are, too, the detail. I have two in my kitchen that I found at Jeannie's shop. I think it was Jeannie's or the other one, the big one. But I have two, but they are, I always look for my favorite ones from that wall. And the other thing that I've always found charming, I, I was talking to Mama about this last night. I didn't realize how many influences I have from British culture in my life until I was a little bit older. Yes. And I was around some other people. Yes. Because it is a heavily influenced part of my existence is this British influence. And the thing that you have running through your house, and I mean, I don't, I remember when Princess Diana died, for instance. Yes. In the third grade. But none of my classmates knew who the hell I so, was. So when I was in the third grade, I wrote my very first like book report or like report essay on a person. And I wrote it about Princess Diana, more specifically her death. And I remember the look on my teacher's face when I sat down at the desktop computer in the library and told her what I was going to be looking up. And I think she said to me, you should probably go home and make sure that your mom is okay with this. <laughs> because to me, it was all my family was talking about. So I thought everybody was talking about the death of Princess Diana. That's right. And I didn't realize that nobody else paid attention to the monarchy like our family did. Yes. Because you have a lot of commemorative things for the, the Queen and Charles and Diana. and Yes. Oh, right there. Yeah, on the wall, there's stamps and plates and Wedgwood and tins. Yes. Is that... Why that particular co collection? Do you collect it because it's fondness for that time? Oh, England was so wonderful. <laughs> Hold on, Grandma so this part of the interview where you hear my grandmother's dog start to bark, my little darling brother, who is 15, saw my car outside and decided to stop. And I was irritated because my grandmother had just started, we had started to unfold into this beautiful conversation and she's not candid with a lot of people. Um, and she kind of clams back up after this. Okay, grandma, what were you saying? England was so wonderful. We had wonderful friends. 
uh, we were all the same. Our neighbors, everybody, we lived in a housing area of 300 houses, and it was just heaven. Uh, our life was wonderful. Uh, the children were wonderful. They didn't get in trouble. England was heaven. So is that is that why you lean towards some of the monarchy stuff is just because it was such a part of your life then or well I I don't know why it struck me but I admired the queen uh I just admired the family mm-hmm. well I mean you probably spent more time paying attention to the royal family than you did the politics of the United States because it really didn't affect you over there. That's right. Prime, I mean, really. That's right. You know, because, yeah, I, why would you pay attention to what was going on here? That's you- right. We, The news was 20 minutes a night, and, you know, it was very little about the United States. Right. And the children growing up, uh, you know, Brett was, let's see when we went there and when we finally came back he was 15 and so it really influenced their lives and they still keep in touch with some people that we uh, knew Yeah. yeah and I still keep in touch with an English lady uh, I call her a couple times a year and uh the rest of them have passed away, but we had wonderful friends, English and American. Yeah, correct. It was just wonderful. Well, I mean, Mama's antiques and the similarities between the two of you with the things you collect. My other favorite one is the glass menagerie, the animals. Uh-huh. And I, it's another thing of just not collecting those dots, connecting those dots is, of course, you and Mama collected them at the same time because yes. they were on base. Yes. And I, I will take pictures of those for our Instagram because I used to sit in front of that cabinet and stare at them for hours wondering what they were, how they were made. Well, that was something else uh, that would the word would get out that the glass animals were in. And you headed to that trailer and... You bought what you could get. Of course. And they're they're like somewhere between an inch long to two and a half inches. Yeah. They're very, very fragile, hand-blown, not blown, but handmade. Yeah, hand-blown. Hand-blown little glass animals, and they are just charming. Those are my, a, a couple of my favorites, but what are some of like your favorite pieces that you have here in your home? The server. My favorite piece of all. Is it? Why is and that? And my Yadro, mm-hmm. the sewing lady, is a, a very special piece. I got that on our 15th wedding anniversary. And just uh, bone china. My china is very special to me, although I haven't used it much. But Well, the times are a little different right now. We can't really pull all of our china out right, to entertain. Right, and those two statues up there. The man and the woman I bought from a lovely couple, and uh, they were $40, and I had to put them on layaway because I couldn't afford $40 at the time. (laughs) 
And uh, my Wedgwood. I love my Wedgwood collection. Uh, anyway, England, anything that had to do with England, the flowers that China flowers mm. Wally picked out for me. It's got all, there's not two flowers alike in that. It is really beautiful. Yes. And uh, I haven't, England was just special. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it was such a, a, a massive part of your existence. It has to be. Yes. Of course, it carried over into every other part of your right. life. Right. And I remember, you know, because I think we always have a fondness for certain antiques. And my first antiques that I collected were the um, sugar tongs and salt spoons that you yes. guided me towards as a child. Yes. What was your first item that you collected when you were my age or younger? Your first one? I don't recall. Glassware, I guess. <laughs> China houses. Uh, Wedgwood. Just. It's always been Wedgwood. Yeah. Yeah. The, what do you love so much about Wedgwood? Because, I mean, you have a lot of it. The quality. Mm. Uh, saying that there's a lot of Wedgwood in my grandmother's house is like saying that there's a lot of Catholics around the Pope. Um, it is her number one thing in her house and the thing that she is most synonymous with. Like if I ever see a piece of Wedgwood in the wild, I instantly think of my grandmother and my brain does that like fast time travel where I can see all of the Wedgwood that's in her house. And as we were having this conversation about her items in her house, she's like gesturing at where the items are. And don't worry, I took as many pictures as I could that day to share with you guys. Yeah, the quality. And it's beautiful to look at. Yes, I have over 50 pieces. <laughs> but it, I mean, I love that they're all different and the craftsmanship is incredible in them. And I thought growing up that everybody's grandma had Wedgwood. Yes. Because you have so much of it. Well, I got to go to the factory. Oh, did you really? And it was wonderful. I uh, went to a crystal factory and... Uh, like the Swarovski Crystal Factory, or no? No, it was similar to that, no. Uh, I forget what the factory was called, but I went to a crystal factory and I went to the Wedgwood Factory, and it was just wonderful. And Wedgwood is over a hundred years old, and uh, I don't know. It just it's just something I really liked. Yeah, it's I well, it's I mean, it's stunning. It's beautiful to look at and it covers a wide range of things. I mean, just looking around here, there's little canisters, there's the uh portraits on the wall, there's the little vases and stuff, there's uh hangings of plates in here and in the kitchen. Yes. They kind of cover every base. Yes. And it's timeless, really. Yes, and it's very English. Very English. Yes. Yeah, it is very but I, it's just, it is definitely your, what's the word? Your brand uh -huh. for you. It's very on brand for you. And is, do you find it is still just as easy to find here in the States? Oh, I haven't bought a piece of Wedgwood in a long, long time. No. Do they send a catalog out or what do they do? I used to get a catalog, two of them with Wedgwood in it. But I haven't bought a piece in a long time, and it's out of style. 
Well, but I mean, that happens with everything. Maybe it'll have a resurgence. Yeah, yeah. And you you just have more retirement fund if you needed it <laughs> with your Wedgwood. I, I don't go antiquing much anymore. Well, and it's right now nobody does much of antiquing during the... Well, they've been pretty busy the last time was in... I was in Northgate Antique. She said they've been pretty busy. Right now, I kind of look at the costume jewelry. Oh, yeah. What do you look for when you're shopping for costume jewelry? Necklaces. Necklaces. Do you do you want them to take them apart and redo them, or do you want them just well, to Well, sometimes have... I do that as well. Yeah, you're very handy. You've Restring. always been very handy. I restring, uh, I restring crystal necklaces, and uh, yeah. 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 Well, and you've always made a lot of your own things ever since you were little. Oh, yes. I've sewn. I used to sew on paper when I was little. But uh, when we were in Spain, I sewed everything the kids and I wore. And that's another thing. When the word would get out that there was fabric in, everybody would head to the BX and what was called the base exchange and buy fabric and everybody sewed. Yeah. And you still do to this day. I still sew. You sew beautiful pieces of clothing. Yeah. I still sew. My grandmother is really modest right here. Um, ever since I was little or every time I've gone to her house, her sewing machine is usually out on her kitchen table and it's a old, uh, I think it's a faff heavy, metal sewing machine and she will find a piece of fabric that she likes and then a pattern and make herself a jacket, a blouse, um, pants, anything like that. She is always, if she, and she's always been so sharply dressed and it, she's just, it, you know, a little over the top, but in a very classy way, it was like her pants and her shirt and everything matched and it was monochromatic and she had a shoe for everything. And some would say a little, maybe uh shopping problem, but she was always impeccably dressed. She still is always impeccably dressed. So yeah. If, if you hadn't have married grandfather at such a young age, what would you have done for a living? Well, I, the guy I was dating before I really started dating Wally, I did love him, and he was in the Navy, and he was from California, and uh, it wouldn't have been good. I wouldn't have done well if with him going to sea. Uh, I married the right man. So kind of weird thing about this gentleman that she speaks about. When my grandfather passed away and we were at his funeral, this boyfriend came to my grandfather's funeral and I didn't know that he was there until after he had left. And my mom was kind of, uh, had this like little bit of a look on her face and I was like, Oh, what's going on? And my grandmother says, that was my ex-boyfriend. And I was like, what bro, you going to show up now after so many years? Like, Take it easy, my guy. He's not even buried yet. Right. But I mean, if you hadn't have gotten married, or what career would you have chosen for yourself? I don't know. Marriage was for me and being a mother. I always enjoyed children. Uh, I babysat a lot, and 
uh, I always enjoyed children. Mm-hmm. I uh, I was meant to be a mother. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And a great grandmother as well. Thank you. <laughs> Max is nice. I adore my grandchildren, that little great-grandson I just love to death. <laughs> when Jocelyn shows me pictures of him, it's just, oh, it just melts my heart. And I have wonderful grandchildren. I just love them so much. And I spent a lot of time with them. Uh, especially Brandon, Joss, Samantha, and I didn't bond until till she was about nine, and then we really bonded, and uh, we started antiquing together. And I guided her to quality items. Yeah, that's for sure. This is where now I talk about um when Jill and I go somewhere, my co-host, and I always turn a dish over. Yes. To see where it was made because yes. of you or know, I guess, a, a little bit more about fine china and porcelain because of that. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I know what to look for when I'm antiquing. And I mean, we did it every Wednesday we could together. I'd go to town with you uh-huh. to Jeannie's, to Park Avenue. And I mean, those are some of my favorite memories to yes. think back on was the time I spent antiquing with you. That's where my love really started. Uh-huh. And I'm forever thankful that you passed that love on to me. And now well, I have... I think it's in your genes as well, yeah. shopping. <laughs> yes, I would. Yeah, I am. Uh, for those of you that don't know, I am the only granddaughter. Yes. And I have three brothers. And my grandmother was hell-bent on making sure that I had ladylike attributes. In certain ways of like, because my mother was not somebody that liked to shop. Or wear jewelry or anything like that. So when my grandma got her hands on me, she was like, this is what we're going to do. Why? I, I in love... a good way, not in a bad way. No, no. No, we had fun together. Uh, and Samantha made good friends in antique shops that did her well. Yes, very well. I have some uh, genie who has since retired and sold her antique store. So this antique store that we're talking about, Park Avenue Antiques, is no longer um, an antique store, nor is it a building right now. It's been under renovation for a couple of years and kind of at a, a stalling point. But it was one of the most impeccably set up antique stores that I had ever been in. It was organized and clean and the ceilings were at least 20 feet tall so even though it was filled with antiques, you never really felt like crowded like you do in some shops. And each, you know, of course it had rented booths, but it had these great big storefront windows. There was six of them. And those booths were always filled with the neatest items, of course, because they were street side. So even the approach, depending on where you parked downtown is what you would see walking up to Jeannie's store. And I would give anything to be able to go back to that antique store now with all of the things I've learned from doing this show and shop again with my grandma. That would truly be special if we could do that together. Um, has always been a really close family friend. She came to my wedding reception. Yeah. And my husband when we were together would call and say, Hey, Sam really likes these things. And Jeannie would hold them. 
And when I would stop in, we would we would chat and talk. And I spent hundreds of dollars in Jeannie's shop. I I did too. I I spent hundreds. A lot of my vintage and antique hair uh, memorabilia and things are from her shop, where Dustin found them. Mine are too. Uh huh. Does she still live in the area, or did she move? No, she moved back home to Ohio. Okay, I wondered about that. Anyway, my favorite pieces of my antique is my grandmother's dining room table. Is that the the one you sit at now, or is that the one that's against the wall? The table. Do you still have it? The dining room table. Okay, the big table. Yes. Okay, it's beautiful. For reference, my grandmother has three tables in her home, and it's it's not a big house. She's a round table. She sits it in the kitchen. There's a small table that I think pops up with two leaves on either side, adjacent to that table, and then the large dining room table. So I was not wrong in my confusion. Wally and I spent a winter refinishing it, and uh, we haven't used it very much, but it's a really a special place in my heart. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, I mean, what is it, probably close to 100 years old. Yes, and the server is definitely, I've had the server since 1968. Oh, man. That's 52 years. And it was hers before then. It was my grandma's, and it's in wonderful condition. It's in beautiful condition. You would not look at either one of those pieces and think that that was their age. Right. Because they are, well, all of your furniture pieces are in fabulous shape. Yes, and my grandchildren have always respected them. Yes. And bringing my child here would literally be like bringing a bull to a china shop. It yes. terrifies me. My grandchildren always respected my house. Absolutely. Yeah, so. there was not a lot. Of, I mean, we had, I mean, we could go to the basement sometimes and play, or we had the box of toys underneath the server yes. that we could play with in the hallway. But you definitely knew... You just didn't you just didn't touch it. It was hands in your pocket. And I almost wonder too if that's just from the amount of time I spent with you antiquing too and going to like the trade shows that mom used to go to and whatnot. Hands in your pockets. Look with your eyes, not with your hands. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I remember and even still to this day when I come to your house I'm very cautious of There's also this thing that when we went to my grandmother's house, we were told in the car. To not mess with any of grandma's antiques because they were literally in every square inch of her home. And my grandmother had this way of when she was sitting at her table having a smoke and you were misbehaving, she would kind of tilt her chin down and look over the top of her glasses with her cigarette in her hand and just kind of turn her head slightly and raise a brow and look at you. And you knew in that moment that you were like a half step away from getting in trouble, trouble. And then my grandfather would be kind of giggling in the background, but he was also pretty stern about it. He had this shrill whistle he could do with just his lips that if you ever heard that, you knew you really had uh, very fucked up. Yes, all my grandchildren are. Mm-hmm. I get great respect for my grandchildren. I always have. Oh, it's because we like you a little bit. Huh? It's because we like you a little bit. Yeah. Because when I was growing up, we used to come over every Sunday, most every Sunday for dinner. Yes. And we spent Christmases here and Christmas. I mean, I the, the fondest memories. And I think that it has most definitely shaped me into the person that I am today and the love I have for family and stories. Yes. And history. 
Yes. It's because of you and my grandfather. It's the reason that I hold and I've always been curious. Yes. So I think I love knowing uh, the reasoning before it and knowing who you were before I knew you. Because I think she seems like a real interesting lady, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for being on the show today. No, no problem. I can't wait to show everybody the pieces we talked about and to dive in a little bit deeper in our fact check. Okay. Thanks, Grandma. You're welcome, my love. <laughs> I love you. I love you, too. Bye-bye. That's how my grandmother ends every phone call, too, is I love you, too. Bye-bye. There won't necessarily be a traditional Curio Corner for this episode where it's a special bonus episode that we're sharing just for you guys on the Patreon. And we've talked about a lot of my grandmother's antiques in other episodes. We've talked about Yadro Porcelain. We've talked about Bosun Heads. We've talked about those things. So this week's Curio Corner will just include a handful of antiques that we've never talked about on the show. And also some interesting family history that I want to share with you guys. So stay tuned. I was so happy to finally get to share my grandmother's episode. Whether, you know, when I when I first recorded it, it was really, really early on. Um, before we really had started interviewing people for the show. And before things had gotten kind of uh, crazy worldwide. Feels like a lifetime ago. Because I interviewed her last July. And I'm so glad that I did that because over the course of the last several months, her health has gotten um, a little bit worse. And I have cut my grandmother's hair for probably 10 years, 11 years, and almost as long as I've been doing hair. And I haven't cut her hair for the past several months because the salon I work in is really busy. There's a lot of people coming and going, and I just didn't feel like it was a safe environment to have her in, and she also isn't super comfortable driving anymore, um, so it was really nice to listen back and talk to her, you know, and I've talked to her since this episode, of course, and she always asks when her episode is going to come out, so I'm excited to call her tomorrow and tell her her episode will be out for our Patreon people, and yeah, uh, thanks for listening to her story. You know, we, I talked about a lot of her stuff and different items that I've collected because of her. In previous episodes, you know, we've talked about Yadro, we've talked about Bosun Heads, we've talked about all of those things. But one of the things that I think it's kind of funny that it's coming up now is we just had Billy Billy B on the show. And uh, I mentioned my grandmother in the second Curio Corner, but I called her and asked her what she collects. And she tells me that she just collects uh, etched glass. And I was like, no, oh, whatever. So one of the things that she collects is Waterford crystal. And all this information, I just went straight to the source. I went to waterford.com to get to the nitty gritty of Waterford. And uh, of all the irony, Billy just posted a TikTok of, you know, those shitty Pinterest, Pinterest ideas of painting things look like pottery. Somebody painted a Waterford crystal vase with paint and baking soda to make it look like pottery. And that person had their comments turned off on the video because it was a really large piece of Waterford crystal. So Waterford crystal has been a crystal company for over 200 years and it comes out of Ireland and it's hand crafted, hand crafted luxury crystal. 
And the heritage of Waterford, though the exact details of like Ireland's glassmaking traditions are kind of lost in the mist of time because it's been such a long time. There's a lot of evidence that shows that the glass was regarded as like a certain form of respect during the Iron Age. So around 500 BC, along with the medieval documents that they found, glassmaking took place back in the middle of the 13th century in Ireland. But of course, because it was so long ago and documents have been destroyed and there's not that trace of history, it's kind of a mystery as to why it started and how it started and why it, why the Irish have such an affinity for this crystal making. And Waterford is kind of synonymous with crystal. My grandmother for my wedding gave me a piece of Waterford crystal vase. It's a vase and it's in my curio cabinet. Um, Waterford Crystal was first established in 1783 in the heart of an Irish harbor in the town of Waterford. And it's just, um, I wonder if this is the crystal place she was talking about in her episode. I'll have to ask her. So it's just, uh, a stone's throw away from where the Waterford Crystal, uh, factory is now. The founders were brothers George and William Penrose, and they were very important developers and principal exporters in the city. They wanted to create the best crystal for drinking and have them be beautiful at the same time. And more than 200 years later, Waterford is still producing beautiful, practical pieces of crystal. So these two brothers, they opened the first glass making factory in Waterford in 1783. And the crystal was immediately like, they were like, whoa, this is nice crystal. It was super clear. It was a beautiful color. It was really pure. It was kind of unprecedented for the time. And they enjoyed that success well into the 1800s. However, like many businesses, after 70 years in 1853, their factory fell victim to the turn of events that echoed, you know, what happens today when things change. But like the common thread we see in this show, there was a post-World War II resurgence in Waterford Crystal. So after World War II in 1947, Waterford has this great resurgence, but now it's obviously by different people. So Kale, I'm going to say basic, B-A-C-I-K. I don't know how to say that. It's Irish, but it's Kale, which is also spelled Czech's brother's name, hired fellow Czech Miroslav Havel as chief designer for this little glass making operation that was starting back up in Ireland. Um, Havel spent so much time at the National Museum of Ireland studying the surviving examples of the Penrose Brothers crystal from the 18th and 19th century. And these traditional cutting patterns made famous by the artisans of Waterford became the basis for the design for the growing product range of the new company of Waterford. And it is from these designs in 1952 that Havel created the the now iconic Lismore, the world's best-selling crystal pattern. How great is that? You know, we've seen this common thread in a lot of curio corners of companies that have this great big rise and then this huge fall. And to have this company get picked back up and still be a pretty dominant uh, business in the crystal world. And they make everything. They make Picture frames, candlesticks, clocks, vases, urns, ornaments, um, jewelry, all of those different things. And the company is still located in the heart of Waterford City. And it is under the guidance now of chief designer John Connolly and a legacy of late Jim O'Leary, our world famous 
master craftsman, it says here on the website. You know, I uh, always look at Waterford Crystal and kind of think of older people and different types of, I don't know, collectors. And I think of things sitting on a bar cart and those types of things. And, um, you know, I'm fortunate to have uh, access to a pretty extensive crystal collection here shortly. Another interesting piece of antiques that we talk about in this episode is my grandmother's extensive collection of Wedgwood porcelain. This was something I grew up seeing. And like I say in the episode, I thought that every person's grandmother or mother collected Wedgwood. Now, my grandmother collects a lot of the kind of traditional blue and white Wedgwood, but I've never really looked into it. So it was really interesting to find out this information about Wedgwood porcelain. All of this information comes from Wedgwood.com. And they, you know, these websites do a pretty good job at keeping their company history because it is so old. And the Wedgwood story began in 1759 when Josiah Wedgwood, he was just 29, started as an independent potter in Burslem, Staffordshire, England. Um, he experimented a lot with clay, exploring all of the different possibilities that exist in that medium. He's today remembered as the father of English pottery because he was so brave in figuring out the way he wanted this pottery to look and have it be fine, luxurious, affordable pottery. And it's still that way today with Wedgwood. And then there's a cute little section that says, did you know? that from 1787 until his death in 1795, Josiah Wedgwood actively participated in the the abolition of slavery cause. Good on you, Mr. Wedge. Many of his sales techniques, such as direct mail, money back guarantees, and free delivery and celebrity endorsement, illustrated catalogs, and buy one, get one free, came from Josiah Wedgwood. So Amazon needs to give this guy a fat cut because... He started it way back when. Um, this is very interesting. Charles Darwin, best known for his contributions to the science of evolution, was Josiah Wedgwood's grandson. I had no idea. Wow. Now we'll just get into some of the types of Wedgwood. Wedgwood is a really fine uh, stoneware porcelain, and one of the most common ones is jasperware. And it first appeared in 1774 after numerous experiments. It's an unglazed, vitreous, fine stoneware. It was made in blue, green, lilac, yellow, black, or white. Sometimes one piece combined three or more of these colors. Upon these delicately colored grounds would be applied a classical and contemporary reliefs, which are what you're familiar with today, the raised images that are on Wedgwood pottery, Contemporary reliefs, which are still made today from molds reproduced from the originals. Um, This light blue jasper gave rise to the expression Wedgwood blue and remains recognizable as Wedgwood's signature worldwide. And of course, Wedgwood being in Britain, it has royal connections, which is why my grandmother loves it. Wedgwood's enduring appeal among the world's royal families and heads of state began when Queen Charlotte, who ordered a set of cream-colored earthenware that she loved so much that Josiah Wedgwood was granted permission to style himself Potter to Her Majesty and to call his innovative creamware Queensware. 
Since the time of Queen Charlotte, Wedgwood collections were to grace the tables of British monarchs and many other illustrious heads of states, such as the Vatican, the Kremlin, and the White House. It was also the brand choice of some of the world's most prestigious hotels. God, could you imagine what your bill would... Well, I guess you don't have to worry about it if you're staying at a hotel that gives you Wedgwood China to drink out of, and not just a glass with a sad paper topper. In 1995, Wedgwood was granted the Royal Warrant, a mark of recognition of those who have supplied goods or services to the royal households. Wow. And at least uh, for at least five years from Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. And since 1940 at the Wedgwood factory in Barrelston, England, modern technology lives side by side with the ancient skills of throwing, modeling, and decorating this earthenware. Uh, these precious skills are preserved through a solid apprenticeship program reintroduced to meet the growing global demand for some of Wedgwood's most exclusive signature pieces. Apprentices trained for up to 10 years to become master craftspeople. That is insane. And they have lots of interesting, beautiful pieces on their website today. I was sitting here looking at all of the Wedgwood stuff and I could... I could fuck with some Wedgwood, some modern day Wedgwood. There are some beautiful saucers and teacups that have really great modern designs on them that are still like there's an espresso cup set for 184 pounds, apple blossoms. There's some really beautiful pieces that I could, I could collect some of these and they're, you know, not the Jasper ware that everyone is known for and they make home decor, tableware. Uh, gifting sets and all of those beautiful things. My grandmother's sister always sends her or used to send her a piece of Wedgwood for her birthday every year. And it all still sits on her table. We'll have all those pictures up on uh, the Patreon for you guys to see. For the next little bit of history, I found the um, United States Department of Interior National Park Service register of historical places document it's a pdf document that was uploaded and it looks like it was originally typed on a typewriter and was filled out in october 8th of 1991 and this just lists some really interesting facts about the area that i grew up in and the the homesteaders at the time um i think i'll probably save this link and have this up on the patreon also so my grandmother was right. It was called Riverview, Idaho, or New Sweden. But my great-grandfather referred to it as Lava Valley because they had there was so much lava rock where they had settled that they had to use oxen with railroad ties to rip out the lava. So he refers to it as Lava Valley. That may have been just a generational term, so I'm sorry, Grandma. So... The, it says, A, name of multiple property listings. So it says Swedish American farmsteads and institutional buildings in New Sweden and Riverview, Idaho, 1894 to 1941. And then it has the associated historical context and the geographical data. And I'm just going to read this as it states here. So the Swedish American settlements in New Sweden is contained within sections that it gives the section numbers. And then it goes all the way to Boise Meridian and an area in Bonneville County, roughly bounded by Oakland Valley Road on the north, Bellin Road in the east, South County Road on the south, and Cinder Butte Road on the west. Cinder Butte Road is where my grand, my family's homestead was on. And they had a little road that went back that was Swenson Lane. 
And then there was the Swedish settlement in Riverview is contained within sections. And it gives the numbers. Boise Meridian, an area in Bingham County, roughly bounded by Baseline Road on the north, the Snake River on the east and south, and the lava beds to the west. So Cinderbrook Road was kind of the end. And then it ties into this road, Baseline Road, and goes to where my family's settlement was. And as I, when I first stumbled across this document, it kind of felt like finding hidden treasure because I had heard these stories so much growing up that part of me thought that they were mostly like folklore and not necessarily truth. But when I read this paragraph, that's in the first part of the... Um, so we're just going to read uh, this whole little paragraph to you guys. This, and this is from Organizing of the Multiple Property Listing Sections. This multiple property listing, MPL, documents two historic contexts. Swedish-American settlement in Idaho from 1870 to 1941 and Swedish-American settlement in New Sweden and Riverview, Idaho from 1894 to 1941. The former, con oh, excuse me. The former context excludes scattered settlements of isolated Swedes who rapidly assimilated to the communities around them. The context also excludes Mormon settlements, which had a distinct character more closely related to Mormon culture than to ethnic heritage. To see that written down and to realize it wasn't like members of my family just being dramatic was pretty profound for me because it's been, it's, it's so tied in and sewn into my family's history to see it written was really, really uh, interesting and reassuring, I guess. This document has a lot, and I'll I'll spare a lot of the details from you guys. If you want to go over and read over it, it'll be up in the Patreon. But this Swedish settlements in the United States that had its beginning in a small colony of New Sweden, which was established in what is now Delaware in 1638 and became a Dutch holding in 1655. And some scholars give credit to that colony for introducing elements of, I am going to butcher this, Savo Karlian, which is Swedes of Finnish ethnicity, culture to America. And then they think that some log structures and construction that are found in the American frontiers were directly related to this Scandinavian immigration. Um, the significant Swedish settlement was limited to its this colonial effort until the mid-19th century when a major out-immigration from Sweden began that lasted until 1915. So during the period of 1840 to 1900, the migration totaled 850,000 immigrants, most of whom came to North America. The migration had its peak years in 1880 to 1884 and tapered off in 1895 to 1899. And that was when the United States economy was in a recession and some American Swedes re-immigrated to their home country, while others moved farther west to create new colonies in states like Idaho, Washington, and California. And these immigrants primarily came from rural Swedish provinces in uh, Smoland. I'm not even going to say these because I cannot say them. I'll, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so they came from these certain provinces. And some of my family is from are from these provinces. And it was where their principal occupations were farming, logging, and sawmill work and mining. And that's what they brought over to this area that we live in now. The irrigation district wouldn't necessarily exist. So it's called New Sweden Irrigation District. If the Swedes had not come here with their farming knowledge of farming through the tributaries in Sweden. So one of the things that um, has always been strange to me about 
my family and um, our Swedish heritage is I don't remember anybody speaking Swedish. Um, I know my great grandmother did and she spoke it often to my older cousins, but I am one of the younger cousins in the family and I don't remember a lot of uh, any really any type of Swedish being spoken. And I just remember certain things that my family made, like we had a potato bologna every year for Christmas, which was a huge Swedish tradition. But other than that, I there really wasn't a lot. And I asked my grandmother about this as to why we didn't have a lot of Swedish traditions uh, around the holidays or just different things like that. And she said, probably because my the immigrant part of my family was very poor and they didn't have the money to continue these traditions. But the cool thing about this document speaking about these settlements is inside of these settlements, they were just like little Swedens. The language was maintained um, in the home and among neighbors, in church services, newspapers, other publications. The traditions were carried on. It's definitely a very, you know, just like it is in the Midwest, it's a, it's a heavy part of the culture here if your family was from Scandinavia. One of the interesting things, too, that my grandmother messages uh, Lutheran, the Lutheran church, we did not grow up uh, going to church, and my grandparents didn't really go to church once they were outside of their parents' homes. But the reason a large part of the Swedish community is Lutheran is it was mandatory in Sweden. And separatists, they would risk the loss of property, banishment, and that made a lot of prospects kind of almost difficult. So immigrating was kind of the best option for them to kind of have religious freedom. And a lot of the people that I grew up knowing, they went to Assembly of God churches. Um, there was Methodist, Swedish Mission Covenant, uh, Swedish Baptist, Augustana Lutheran churches. All of those things kind of traveled over, but primarily my family went to an Assembly of God church, and that was where a lot of the Scandinavian immigrants went. Um, I am always really thankful for this heritage because it is such a large part of the area that I live in and a large part of it for a lot of the people that grew up here. And I'm thankful to have, I'll share some pictures of the family. It's not necessarily a family cemetery, but it's the uh, Scandinavian cemetery. And it has all of the families names are etched into a lava rock and my entire family is buried in this cemetery. Um, and it's a really, it's out in the middle of where these settlements would have been in the country overlooking the land that they brought to be fruitful for this area. That's really all that I had to share in this curio corner today. Um, yeah, thanks for listening to my grandmother's story and a little bit more behind the person that drove me for my love of antiques and my love of stories. Um, one last thing I'll share with you is about my grandfather. And she's, she speaks of, my grandfather passed away February 10th, 2015, and it was very sudden. My grandparents were creatures of habit. They had dinner at the same time every night, breakfast at the same time every morning, kissed each other goodnight to bed all the time. I mean, you did the same things on the same days of the week. Habit, habit, habit. And when my grandfather passed away, he had just received the final dust cover 
um, art for his first published book. And he had shared it on Facebook that day. He was able to celebrate it. He sat down for his last meal with my grandmother and was uh, gone by that evening. He had a brain bleed that was undiagnosed and they think that it was slowly happening over the course of three weeks. So it wasn't necessarily a stroke. It wasn't necessarily uh, anything like that, mannerism. It was just a slow bleed. And I remember getting the phone call from my mother that my grandfather was going to the hospital and there was, excuse me, there was a tone in her voice that I knew he wasn't coming back from the hospital. And I remember several months before this, when my grandfather was sitting writing at that dining room table, my grandmother talks about that was his office, was at that dining room table. We sat across from each other and had a cup of coffee like we always did after I cut his hair. And I remember this conversation was a little different. He wanted to make sure that there would be somebody. Jesus Christ. He wanted to make sure that there would be somebody to keep the stories and the history alive. And he looked at me and he said, and I know you'll do a fine job with that. And he kind of unofficially (laughs) gave me this title of family historian. But I didn't know, of course, we don't know at that time that just a couple months later, he would be gone. My grandparents, uh, especially my grandfather, spent a lot of time with us. My mom was single. And if it wasn't for my grandparents, we probably wouldn't have been as uh, well taken care of at the time as we were. And I, we spent a lot of time together. And I would, I would give anything, I would give anything to sit down for one more cup of coffee with my grandfather and hear about what he liked to collect and his antiques. So I guess what I'm really saying is, when you hear this, if you have a family member that you haven't asked the questions about your family's antiques or your family's history or Ask them what kind of music they listened to when they got ready to go out. Ask your family those important questions. As soon as this episode's done, call your grandma, call your aunt, call whomever you're closest to that's older in your family and ask them these questions. Ask them about their messy bits of their life, the pretty bits of their life. Ask them about the things that were always family history to you, but most definitely have an interesting story. Thanks so much for spending a little bit of your day with me and my grandmother. She'll probably be embarrassed, but also really flattered that you guys wanted to hear her story. As always, I hope you find some good shit. Jill's not here, but she would tell you to check underneath the tables and ask people about their antiques. The stories will never disappoint you. Bye.